0: listeners to the 10th episode of the Law of Liberty podcast. We've made it to double digits, and we're very excited to be back with you. Stratty, how you been?
1: Been really good. It's uh, been busy, busy, busy I know. week with school. Uh, it's only getting busier, but I've been having a great time. I mean, I've been reading more. I've been active more. I've really just been excited to sit down and record with you again man like we talked about before the show i love doing this it's just school gets in the way and uh you texted me the other day saying yo we need to record again and i was just uh i I mean i love this show but damn life is crazy right now (laughs)
0: life is very very crazy but that's why we gotta that's why we gotta keep pushing forward because we gotta we gotta save the people out there yeah. who in all of this all this news cycle and everything going on we gotta
1: there's still uh, still people in legal trouble
0: exactly <laughs> we gotta we gotta put things in focus for our for our listeners How about you? I've been all right um same kind of deal though you know just school has just been just uh really really overburdening lately I gotta make some kind of change I mean. I'm, I'm hanging in there like I'm learning a lot and I really like what I'm learning but just the amount of work has been really killer and I've just been thinking lately that if I want to do some of the other things that I want to keep doing like this podcast and music I might need to find some way I can reduce my workload without you know learning less or, or not doing as well you know because it's just ridiculous how much work I've been doing lately.
1: I mean, you're going to school for something very specific, so you can't really do this. But what I like to do when I find myself in that kind of a rut where, you know, there's some work I need to do, but there's also a lot of other things I want to do. I just find a night where I stay up all night and I do all the work for the classes I do not care about, however far in advance I can. And I just do that. And I've done that a lot this semester. It's helped me. Um, I really should have done it. (laughs) Uh, a couple of weeks ago, because I have a lot of work today, but oh well. Uh, how about we get into this? I don't think people really care about our lives. <laughs> how about we start talking about the Amy Coney Barrett hearings? How about we yeah. talk about those a little? So what What have you seen? Um, I've only watched a, a day or two of it myself. What have you seen? What have you been your thoughts on it?
0: Well, I had a lot of thoughts, and uh, I kind of wish I would have been more able to take more notes when I was listening to it. Um, just because I was so busy with other things, I was basically just kind of listening to it while doing other homework and stuff. So my, my attention was a little split. But I still had a lot of different thoughts about it and uh, some things I wanted to, to point out and some interesting things. The first thing I thought that was really interesting was, uh, was the angle that the Dems took in their, uh, in their approach to the whole thing and i think it kind of goes back to what we what we talked about before with all of the politics that goes into it and everything and and specifically focusing on why trump picked her and i think one of the reasons after 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 watching the hearings one of the reasons that stuck out to me is she is at least in terms of in terms of herself she's really got nothing on her yeah. Like she really doesn't have any dirt on her. You know, there's nothing, they can't drum up some accusation from years past like yeah. like they did with Kavanaugh and, and, you know, she's got the whole family and everything. I mean, she's on, at least on paper, you know, she's as, she's as spick and span as they come. And so it was really kind of interesting to see how the Dems, they couldn't go after her and they had to like shift and just basically focus on, they basically focused on Obamacare And abortion and uh, and their whole thing about, oh, democracy and and this close to the election and this is unprecedented appointment. And it's just all this bullcrap that they were throwing out there because they couldn't actually go after her or her philosophy.
1: And um, everyone keeps going after her for abortion. And um, I know we talked about it in our episode about her. I'm not sure if I brought this up specifically, but she's never even ruled on it. Um, and I don't understand why everyone's trying to grill her on this. Um, I mean, if she had said something where she had, you know, legitimately like was, was saying, hey, I'm going to go into the Supreme Court and try and get it overturned, bro versus Wade. I'm going to try and get it overturned. I can understand people's anger then, but she's literally never ruled on it. And the only thing she's said about it, which they did grill her on uh, during the hearings, was this whole super precedent thing. Um, stare, de- I'm going to say it incorrectly, I'm sure, Stare Desiasis, whatever. Desiasis. starry, st- starry decisus. starry Decisis. there we go. But um, they didn't call it that, but there was a moment, I'm not sure if you saw it, where Amy Klobuchar is kind of trying to grill her
2: on her... I got to say,
0: but, but before you go into Klobuchar, I just got to say, of of all the Dems, there were a few Dems who were a little bit more, like, there were, there were a few Dems who were a little bit better than some of the others. Klobuchar came off so bad. Yeah. She was horrible. I mean, like, skin crawling, the look in her face, the tone of her voice, what she was saying, she
1: was despicable. This was her first moment in the limelight since her failed campaign for president, so she was trying to make something of it. (laughs) I think she failed miserably, however, because she looked like an idiot. She questioned... Um, she questioned, how about we just listen to it, Dave? I have it right here. Oh, sure. And, uh, we can, I mean, I don't think we'll get any kind of copyright for playing it on the podcast. No,
0: no, no. It's a public hearing.
1: So let me go ahead and unplug this for a second and I'll play it out loud for everyone.
2: Okay. Well, why don't we end there with precedent? I think that's a good way to end here. Um, so... You wrote in your 2013 Texas Law Review article uh, that you tend to agree with the view that when a justice's best understanding of the Constitution conflicts with Supreme Court precedent or case law, it is, quote, more legitimate for her to follow her preferred view rather than apply the precedent. And I want to run through a few examples. So Brown v. Board of Education, as we know, that holds that the 14th Amendment prohibits states from segregating schools on the basis of race. So uh, is that precedent?
3: Um, yes. That
2: can't be overruled?
3: Well, that is precedent. Um, mm-hmm. And as I think I said in that same article, it's super precedent. People consider it to be on that very small list of things that are so widely established and agreed upon by everyone. Mm -hmm. Calls for its overruling simply don't exist.
2: Okay. Well, you also separately acknowledge that in uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the Supreme Court's controlling opinion talked about the reliance interest on Roe v. Wade, which it treated in that case as super precedent. Is Roe a super precedent?
3: How would you define super precedent?
2: I, I, I actually, I might... Thought someday I'd be sitting in that chair I'm not I'm up here so I'm asking okay, you well
3: people so. use super precedent differently okay the way that it's used in the scholarship and the way that I was using it in the article that you're reading from was to define cases that are so well settled that no political actors and no people seriously push for their overruling and I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe which I think indicates that Roe doesn't fall in that category and scholars across the spectrum say that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled but descriptively it does mean that it's a ca- not a case that everyone has accepted and doesn't call for its overruling I don't okay think so
2: here's what here's what's interesting to me you said that Brown is and I know my time is running out is a super precedent that's something uh, the Supreme Court has not even said but you have said that so if you say that why won't you say that about Roe v Wade a case that the court's controlling opinion In that Planned Parenthood v Casey case has described as a super precedent. That's what I'm trying to figure out.
3: Um, Well, Senator, I can just give you the same answer that I just did. I'm using a term in that article that is from the scholarly literature. It's actually one that was developed by scholars who are, you know, certainly not conservative scholars who take a more progressive approach to the Constitution. And again, you know, as as Richard Fallon from Harvard said Roe is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased but that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. It just means that it doesn't fall on the small handful of cases like Marbury versus Madison and Brown versus the Board that no one questions anymore.
2: Is United States versus Virginia military is that super precedent?
3: Senator Clopshire if you continue to ask questions about super precedents that aren't on the list of the super precedents that I discussed in the article that are well acknowledged in the constitutional law literature. Every time you ask the question, I will have to say that I can't grade it.
2: Okay. Well, I am then left with looking at the tracks of your record and where it leads the American people. And I think it leads us to a place that's going to have severe repercussions for them. Thank you.
1: So, Our listeners can't really see the video of it, but um, the whole time Klobuchar just has this look on her face that screams, you know, she's just mad. She's very angry that uh, she doesn't know what the super precedent means. She doesn't have any kind of understanding of why this principle is used by the courts. Um, And I posted this on my Instagram, and, I mean, all I could say was, simply like the people overseeing the confirmation of a judge they don't even know the legal principles and doctrines that our own courts follow and we we trust these people to be our leaders i mean that and like i mean in that audio clip you really don't hear much like i mean you have to kind of see the video that goes with it to see why it was such a gotcha moment but i don't know that made me happy um Another, do you have anything else you want to say about that moment before I have I go into another moment I really loved?
0: Sure, sure. I I mean I I will I will just say that um we mentioned that um that super precedent article. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, in, yeah. In our and I was really happy. A lot of a lot of the cases we talked about her were brought up in the hearings after we recorded our episode, and and a couple of her articles that we talked about brought up. So we we actually in our first episode. We actually hit every, a lot of the things that came up in the hearing, so I was I was really happy about that. It seems that we had our finger on the pulse of uh, the important things that were going on. But it was really it was really interesting to hear her explain what she was talking about in that article because what she meant by super precedent was not any kind of legal um, actual legal doctrine. It was just a uh, uh, an idea in the scholarly literature. To understand practically different cases in the context of the Constitution, so like you know, Marbury versus Madison, that's super precedent because nobody is going to go into court and argue that Marbury should be overturned. But that doesn't mean that uh, that doesn't mean that no one could do it. It just means that it's at this point the chance of anybody doing it is so low. And so like the whole super precedent idea actually isn't just about the courts alone. It's actually like a political concept, too. Yeah. It's like Marbury's not going to be overturned because there's no political movement to do so. So that's what makes it super precedent.
1: Yeah. The way I took it was that um, if like, you know, how you just put it, it's a political thing as well. And it's more saying like if the people as a whole aren't going to accept it, then there's really no way we can force it down their throats. That's, I mean, that's kind of the layman's way of saying it, I would say, because that's basically what's being said. One of my other favorite moments that I saw in the hearings, and I don't have an audio clip of this, but I have it written down, was um, Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut. Oh, dear Lord. During the hearings, he got on to Amy Comey Barrett and her views on gun rights and said, if your views on the Second Amendment are adopted by the Supreme Court, it would imperil common sense state gun laws like Connecticut's all around the country. Well, me and you talked about how literally all of her rulings on cases specifically surrounding the Second Amendment come from a pretty originalist point of view. So she's looking at it from what our founding fathers intended for the Second Amendment to mean for the whole history of this country. So basically what he's saying is that he he's scared that she'll uphold the Constitution, and his statement also his statement also indicates that many states have gun laws in conflict with the Constitution, as well as most cities with just their own state constitutions. I found that to be the dumbest moment from any of the senators during the whole hearing. Um, do you have any comments on that, or any other moments that you really enjoyed? Yeah.
0: Well, I don't think I have any specific comment on that, other than to say that Blumenthal, you know, as well, uh, made a fool out of himself at multiple points in the, in the hearings. I I think one of the main things, I guess, it, I guess it's tied to this is that I was it was interesting that the Dems, they, it's like you said before, they don't even know or or care to know or understand the nature of what they're doing in this hearing. The whole point of the hearing for the Supreme Court justice is about credentials and is about, you know, this person's ability to understand the law and to apply it, but it's not about the policy considerations. And that was a point that, you know, Barrett kept going to a lot, and I thought, you know, she did a pretty good job of of standing strong when she was being pushed on these on these questions and issues about how she views certain past precedents or how she might view in, in certain cases. And, you know, she very, very strongly just held her ground and said, look, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't opine on these issues. She appealed to Ginsburg in doing that, you know, and the Ginsburg... Um, I can't remember what they called it, the Ginsburg, but that motto, you know, it's like no hints, no tips, you know, I'm not going to give away how I might view in a certain case because that's going to take away my impartiality and the parties to the case aren't going to be able to go to the court feeling that they're going to get a fair hearing. So I thought that was, I, I thought that was pretty good on her, you know, to, to stand up to that. I think mainly, and I think the Dems knew that that's probably what she was going to do. I think... I think what the Dems were really trying to do were two things. I think the first thing they were trying to do was to, I think that they were trying to appeal to her. I think they knew that she's getting in. This is happening. The, the Republicans have the votes. She's going to get confirmed. It's going to happen.
1: I mean, there's I think, no way she doesn't. There's, right. I mean, if she doesn't get in, I'm going to be shocked.
0: Right. And so I think that's why the Democrats knew that there was actually probably no point in actually going after her or her or her qualifications directly. And they probably knew that you know, going after her directly wouldn't play well politically. Um, so I think that they were basically trying to be like to her, look at all the things that the ACA does. Look at all the things that these other laws do. Are you, I think this was really what they were saying. Are you going to be the one? to uh, to take away all this coverage for all these people. And this is one of the things that the woman from Hawaii kept going on. It's like, yeah. are you actually going to take into consideration the real-world consequences of your decisions? And basically what she's saying is, are you going to put policy considerations above the Constitution? That's literally what this woman was trying to get a Supreme Court nominee to say, that you care more about policy than the constitution itself
1: and um i wanted to say one comment on the whole you know her not trying to expose where she would lie on certain cases me and you are smart enough to realize why that's a good thing and why that's smart and why that works in her favor because you know you're not supposed to show your what side you're leaning on. You're not supposed to show your bias at all when you're in her kind of position. So she's being very professional when she says, I'm not going to answer that. You know, I'm, we'll wait to see if that kind of case ever comes up. She's being very professional when she does that. However, what the Democrats are doing is working because I've had literally people come up to me, uh, or not come up to me, but just, you know, DM me on social media and say, well, why can't we just get another judge? She doesn't answer any of the questions they're asking her, and it's like, dude, do you not understand how the c- courts work? And I mean, it, it sucks, but sadly, what they're doing is working on the populace. People are looking at the Supreme Court as—I mean, me and you—I don't think the Supreme Court should should exist at all. But me neither. Um,
0: but just to be people, clear to all yes, of our listeners,
1: but but the but it, as long as it exists, we need it there to uphold the Constitution to its truest form. Um, the now since these hearings have started, people are literally looking to the Supreme Court just to maintain the status quo. They don't care about the Constitution, and I I can tell that because people are just scared that this lady will threaten the status quo, that she'll and it and it, it's crazy, man. Um, it's working. What they're doing is working. It shouldn't be, but it is. Um, so I, w- I did want to make a comment on that because that's something I've noticed, and it it sucks. But that's just how tricky the media is for you.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think that they have ginned up a lot of uh, a lot of political, you know, sentiments um, linked up with all of this. Um, and I think part of that is just you know a basic lack of legal understanding of the of the average American voter, um, you know, that they would be able to be manipulated by this because they don't understand the nature of the proceedings. They don't understand the nature of the position. They don't understand, you know, these kind of legal um, doctrines and, and the kind of difference between, you know, the role of judges and the role of legislators. Um, and... Yeah, I think they're just trying to... I, like I said before, I think the Dems, what they were mainly trying to do was to appeal to her, but also I think, secondly, they were trying to... Um, I think they were really trying consciously to delegitimize the entire process because I think that they wanted everything to... And this this links into what they were talking about with, oh, this this confirmation so close to the election. And, you know, last time when Merrick Garland was, was, was uh, 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 put in there by Obama and then the Republican Senate pushed him down, and it's just kind of like they're saying, there's never been an appointment this close to an election. But then it's like, okay, yeah, sure. But also, most of the time when the Senate is of the opposite party— and the, uh, the, the when the Senate's the opposite party of the president, they don't confirm the nominee. That's pretty standard practice. So that's what the GOP did in 2016 or, or you know, and and uh, and the same thing here. Now that the Senate's the same party as the uh, as the president, the nominee gets in. And that's just the politics of this. I mean, that's just, you know, whether or not you like it, it's just like this is the way. It's always been. And, and, you know, I really don't think that there's any serious uh, breakage away from from the uh, from the previous um, from the previous traditions of the Senate or anything like that. And to to claim otherwise, I think, is just political, you know, just bullcrap.
1: I would be curious to go back and look at hearings before Clarence Thomas's hearings and see how politicized and, you know, troublesome they were for the people involved, because when Reagan got Justice Kennedy uh, put in, they turned the Senate turned down Bork, and then turned down a second person. I couldn't, I forget who it was, but Reagan had to go through quite a few people because he had to deal with the Democratic Senate during his last uh, term in office. Um, but we don't ever hear of any like. Troubles that went around around that. It it seems like just a a blimp on the radar whenever we look at the Supreme Court history and just American history, whereas when we consider, I don't know, the three that pop into my head are now Clarence Thomas, Kavanaugh, and now ACB's hearings. They seem to be full of scandals, full of politicized bullcrap. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm, I haven't really watched too many hearings. Like, I've only paid attention to two in my lifetime, and that was Kavanaugh and this one's. So you've probably seen more. So I wanted to ask you, you know, has it ever been like this with anyone else other than those three I named?
0: No, no I don't think so. And, I, I mean, I think, I think Bork's an exception because Bork was particularly controversial. Um, and why
1: was that? I don't know much about Bork. I, I learned I about him this last week.
0: I can't really remember what the specific reason was.
1: Well, maybe we could tackle this in another episode because I do want to do a history of the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, that would be a, that would be an interesting one for sure. Um, I think another thing about Bork was that um, I don't know if this had anything to do with the with the hearings, but he was a staunch positivist. I mean, very you know anti natural law. Um, he was very much the view of the law is just whatever. The government says when it follows its own procedures, you know, which is obviously, you know, ridiculous. That's not what law is. And we've talked about that extensively um, before, you know, about what the nature of law, the nature of law is not just what some government says it is when it follows its own procedures. Um, so but that was the Bork kind of view. So I think, you know, Bork not getting on was probably a good thing, um, at least as far as that was concerned. Um uh, but yeah, uh, I mean, if you look at the the Supreme Court confirmations of the past, I mean, look at like Ginsburg. What did she get? Ninety-five votes or something like that. You know, wasn't wasn't Scalia nominated ninety-eight to zero? I mean, so, we're talking like we're talking about like bipartisan ninety yeah. to ninety-eight of the senators voting for for um for justices. Um, and I think that I think that that's just uh. I think that the stakes are just higher now, you know. I think that everything's been cranked to 11. And, you know, I think that the dysfunction of 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 the political aspects and everything are just it's just you know, it, it just can't be contained anymore inside the legislature. It's just spilling out into everything else, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, um you got anything else you want to say about the hearings?
0: Yeah, I got a few things I want to point out cool. and then kind of trans- transition into our, our next topic. Um, I will just say, I guess, is that, you know, the, Demo- the Democrats are being totally hypocritical. I mean, you know, there's definitely no chance that if the Democrats, if, if the parties were flipped, you know, you know that the Democrats would be doing exactly what the Republicans are doing right now. And for the Democrats to be complaining about it is just, you know, political BS. I mean, you can just see, you can just see right through it. You know, it, it's just uh, ridiculous. Um, but I'm also, I'm, I'm really, really interested in this whole idea that the Dems were were hitting on about, um, you know, the delegitimization of the democracy. This claim that they're making, and you know, by extension. The, the delegitimization of the court, um, and, you know, they're trying to make Barrett out to be, you know, some kind of illegal appointment or, you know, something that flies in the face of the American voters, which I mean is, which is absurd. I mean, you know, it's like the, the president is elected and he's the president until noon on the day the power transfers. So, I mean, it's like Trump would have the authority to nominate a Supreme Court justice the day before he leaves office, you know. I was, I mean, about, like, yeah. <laughs>
1: I was about to say he could do it right before he goes to transfer power.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, if if Donald Trump were to sign a treaty at eleven fifty nine a.m. one minute before he relinquishes power, that treaty is in force because he was the president at eleven fifty nine a.m. You know, I mean, he's a lame duck. But in the terms of, of the law and the election, I mean, that's the way it works. So to say that, to say that there's no authority here, to say that the Constitution is being violated um, by the Republicans is just ridiculous. And we know the Democrats would be doing the exact same thing if, if the positions were sw- flipped. So I have no sympathy for them uh, as far as that goes. Um, I want to I I mention a few other tiny things um, just about Barrett herself and kind of her, her view on, on certain things. Um, I think it was it was Senator Sass. Thomas Sass, is that his name?
1: Uh, ben Sass.
0: Ben Sass, okay, okay. yeah. so I think it was I think it was him. I could be wrong., um, you know, I, I could be misremembering who was the ones, but I think it was him. the The Republicans were the only ones who actually asked Barrett substantive questions about her judicial philosophy. okay? So the Democrats were like, oh, you're gonna overturn Obamacare. Oh, you're gonna overturn Roe. Oh, you're gonna do all this crap and we don't want that. Whereas the Republicans were asking questions like, so, um, what is the role of the Declaration of Independence in interpreting the Constitution? Or, you know, what is the role of legislative history in interpreting the meaning of a statute? You know, it's like those are the interesting questions. You know, those are the questions you need to be asking at the confirmation hearing because that's how because the justice can't give away or or the, the nominee can't give away wh- how they're going to rule on any specific case or what they view about any given president, but they can say, well, I think that legislative history is something that we shouldn't use as much, you know, and they yeah. can give a reason for that. Or they can say, oh, you know, I think that the, the Declaration of Independence is something that, you know, is a standard that, you know, or, or you know— these kind of more substantive legal questions that aren't giving away how she'd rule in a particular case, but informs her viewpoint. And from that viewpoint, you know, that's what we can use to discern how she might rule on certain things. So, you know, you don't have to ask her directly how she's going to rule on certain things to get an idea of what her general philosophy is going to be. Um, So I thought that, I thought that that was interesting that, you know, uh, the only side that was actually asking the kind of questions that, should be asked in this kind of proceeding uh, were the Republicans, you know, so, you know, credit where credit is due, I suppose. <laughs> but but one of, the, one of the questions that I thought was interesting was uh, she did get asked, what's the role of the Declaration of Independence in interpreting the Constitution? And this is something that we talked about in our first Constitution episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she said outright that the Declaration of Independence is not... Binding Law. Um,
4: what role does the Declaration of Independence play in interpreting the Constitution or what's the relationship between the two documents?
3: Um, well, the Declaration of Independence is an expression of our ideals, um, expression of you know our desire to be free of England. Um, it's not law, however. The Constitution is law. So the Constitution is our foundational law and a governing document and, you know, while the Declaration of Independence tells us a lot about history and about the roots of our republic, um, it isn't binding law.
0: It's not something that, you know, any kind of laws or, or, or any kind of things are compared against uh, in interpreting constitutionality of things.
1: Which is really not cool.
0: And I think that that's something <laughs> that us both totally disagree with.
1: Right? Yeah, I, I disagree with that totally. I just had to make a joke, but... No, I mean, I think that's going to change a lot of, I mean, if anyone actually pays attention, I think that would change a lot of libertarians' minds on their support of her. I'm not saying it should wholeheartedly. I still think she's a great woman. Uh, I think she's the best uh for the job right now, other than Napolitano, but um, <laughs> uh, no, I don't like that at all. I, I didn't miss that, so thank you. I mean, I didn't catch that, so thank you for bringing that up but i mean what what did she say like what her reasoning was did she just try to say like it was only a rhetorical type document meant for like you know yeah like to you know liven up some spirits
0: no no i I need to go back and listen to exactly her explanation but i think what she was just kind of getting at was that you know the constitution has the supremacy clause right Mm -hmm. and so i think that what she was just kind of getting at was that in her view, once the Constitution was adopted, whatever came before it was superfluous,
1: you know, which I can get that,
0: which which
1: makes sense. It but, makes sense but I don't like it.
0: But also at the same time, then you'd have to like invalidate like the Magna Carta yeah. and like the entire like legal ideas at the basis of of our entire Western, you know, legal system. And so I think that that's ridiculous to say that there aren't principles within a document like that that are binding. I mean, the entire way that the states became independent states was by the Declaration of Independence. So if the Declaration of Independence isn't binding law still, then the states don't have their sovereignty even within the federal system. Because within the federal system, the states retain their sovereignty. And that sovereignty was based on the Declaration of Independence. And so I think it was just—and this goes into another point um uh, about uh her and i think you know i don't want to say this with any disrespect to her and i don't want to say this as uh you know the the mid-20s podcast host sitting in his pajamas in his bedroom you know pontificating about this crap um but i'm gonna say it you know partly for the meme but partly because i think it's legit
1: uh i'm excited
0: it's something Jeff Dice said when we asked him. I think she might be kind of a lightweight, <laughs> not in the sense of her intellect, obviously. I mean, she's probably smarter than I am in terms of just raw mental power, um, not in any of that aspect aspects. But I think that I think that she might just kind of be within this system, and she doesn't have like a broader philosophical view of things which we obviously think is very important in understanding law, because I think you need to understand philosophy and economics in order to understand the correct nature of law. So I think she might just be kind of, you know, she just injects herself into this system and she doesn't think about the philosophy undergirding, you know, the basis of... And I could be wrong, you know, she might have been like, you know, pulling punches or whatever for the hearing. Um, But I also think another example was when Senator Ted Cruz asked her about the Second Amendment. And he asked her something like, Well, why is the Second Amendment so important? I want to start by asking you a question. Why is the First Amendment's protection of religious liberty? Why is that important?
3: Well, I think it's broadly viewed that the framers uh, protected and ratifiers protected the free exercise of religion. Because, you know, for reasons that we all know from history of persecuted religious minorities fleeing to the United States, that enshrining that protection, um, you know, it was one of the Bill of Rights because it was considered so fundamental.
0: And why why does that matter to Americans? What difference does it, that make in, in anybody's life?
3: Well, I think all of the Bill of Rights, each and every one of them, is important to Americans because we value the Constitution, um, including religious liberty.
0: Well, how about the free speech protections of the First Amendment? Why, why are those
2: important?
3: Um, so that minority viewpoints can't be squashed, so that it's not just the majority that can speak popular views. You you know, I, you don't really need the First Amendment if what you're saying is something that everybody wants to hear. You need it when people are trying to silence you.
0: And how about the Second Amendment? Why is the right to keep and bear arms important?
3: Well, you know, we talked about Heller earlier this morning. And, you know, what Heller tells us is that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms um, for self-defense.
0: So her answers here for me really left a lot to be desired uh, because she did use the word fundamental when she was talking about the First Amendment, but I think in general her answers really were focusing more on history and practicality which are obviously you know fine considerations, but uh, you know she she didn't really focus on on the idea of these being rights that people have, which precede the government, and that was that was the point of the Bill of Rights. I mean the uh, Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment says that that the enumerated rights do not disparage other rights which the people retain. So the entire idea of of the enumerated. Uh, 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 powers of congress and 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 the other branches of government and and the entire idea was that there were natural rights that people had which precede the government and uh, she didn't focus on on that natural rights kind of idea as to as to why uh, as to why these ideas are so important to because they're just natural rights which we have which were never delegated away and to be fair to her, she did uh, take questions from Senator Sass on the, on the Ninth Amendment. Uh, but again, uh, I think when you hear her answer, you can see how she, she knows all about the what's, but the why's um, and the, the philosophical basis for the why's uh, seem to be a little lacking in, in her understanding of these issues.
4: Can you explain uh, what the Ninth Amendment is about? Why do we have it?
3: Um, well, it's often treated as a rule of interpretation. There's not a lot of substantive doctrine or any substantive doctrine under it. It's preserving. It says that you know the rights that the individual's rights are preserved. That those not expressly granted aren't taken away.
4: And if we maybe broaden it from just the Ninth Amendment to the Bill of Rights in general, why do we have one, and what would be different in our constitutional structure if we didn't have the Bill of Rights?
3: Um, If we didn't have a Bill of Rights, we wouldn't have particular rights singled out for special protection. Um, As I'm sure you know, Senator, the Bill of Rights was added in 1791 because during the debate about the ratification of the original Constitution, many states objected to the fact that there was no Bill of Rights. The original idea, when the Constitution, the original Constitution, and by that I mean, you know, beginning with Article I moving up, um, was that the very structure of government protected rights. And there wasn't thought to be a need to have a Bill of Rights because it was thought that the separation of powers and the structure of federalism would be a protection for those rights. But those who really felt like they wanted the additional protection, the Bill of Rights prevailed, and James Madison drafted them, and they were ratified in 1791.
4: So I don't mean to put words in your mouth. I mean to hy- lay out a hypothesis so you can expand upon it or correct me. But is it is it fair to say that most governments in human history have had a default assumption of prohibition. Governments can do whatever they want, and citizens don't have rights unless governments proactively give them rights. The, the default assumption is you don't have freedom of religion in most governments across time and space. You don't have the freedom to start a business, and the American system starts with the opposite assumption, which is that freedom is the default condition. People are created in the image of God with um, inalienable rights. These are pre-governmental rights, and the government has to have specifically enumerated powers. We, the Congress, have to authorize Article II branch, the, the executive branch, to go ahead and do anything. And if they don't have those authorities, they in the, in the executive branch and the administrative agencies, they can't do anything unless Congress gives them the freedom. And the people's default assumption is freedom. And so our system is to flip the historic prohibition assumption. And we have a freedom assumption on people and a prohibition assumption on government. And so prior to the Bill of Rights, the structure of the Constitution was saying um, that w- we don't need to enumerate rights because the assumption is you have a right unless a prohibition has been created. Is that a fair way to think about it? And how would you expand upon it more eloquently since you teach this stuff? Uh,
3: you are far more eloquent than I, Senator Sasse. Um, no, I think that is an accurate description of how the constitu of the assumptions underlying our Constitution. That the assumption was that if Congress had limited power, it wouldn't have the ability to infringe rights in the first place. Um, and of course, at the time the Constitution was ratified, the states... Um, were thought to have, uh, because the people are closer to their state governments, you know, states, um, well, there's just the, that's the point of federalism, right? That citizens can have different policies in states and more influence over their state governments and their state legislator, state legislatures than the federal government.
0: And that's when I was thinking to myself, oh my God, if, if Judge Napolitano was the one here, and Senator Cruz asks him, why is the Second Amendment so important? I know that he would have said in front of that committee, the Second Amendment is important
1: because yeah.
0: it protects you, have Americans. To be, <laughs> you have to be able to shoot the government be- when it becomes tyrannical.
1: You yeah, know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And that's the answer I wanted from her. I wanted to say the Second Amendment is important because individuals in the polity need to be able to shoot tyrannical government officials. And, you know, her answer was just just left a lot. To be desired, um, as far as that goes. So I'm, I'm, I'm worried she might just be a kind of, you know, just kind of a very intelligent but lightweight kind of thinker who's just kind of stuck in the system and doesn't have a broader philosophical basis for her philosophy in judicial matters.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I, I agree with you. I think I see that. I see that as well. Um, you know, and uh, while I think she's better than. Pretty much almost every member of Congress, she suffers from what pretty much every member of Congress has, and it's that they lack an understanding of things that matter outside of what they do, but yet what they do has an effect on these things. And those that is things like economics and such, and uh, philosophy does play an important part into why you believe what you believe and why uh, you do what you do, in my opinion. Um, You know, I wouldn't want someone for such a serious job if they didn't have some kind of philosophical background or understanding of such things. Because I I do believe it's very important to have those kind of things because it gives you a wider understanding. Um, You know, and I wasn't also aware of what you just told me now, but that also changes my opinion on her quite a bit. Even though I still like her for the spot, I kind of went with you. It's kind of a lightweight. I wish she would have a bit of a, a better answer than just "it's the Second Amendment." You know, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the things that that I was I was disappointed with. I mean, I did come out of the hearings a little bit um, a little bit less optimistic.
1: I really did. That that, that makes me think. I mean. Forgive me, I'm not sure, I've slept since then, so I'm not sure if we mentioned this in the first episode about her, but is she a positivist or a natural rights person? Because whenever you tell me this right there, that sounds very uh, positivist.
0: Well, you know, Scalia was a positivist. And, uh, you know, she very, very, she very, very clearly um, you know, she didn't necessarily want to distance herself from Scalia, but she wanted to make it clear that she's not Scalia 2.0. She doesn't agree with him on everything. She agrees with his method, but doesn't necessarily agree with the conclusions. Um, and But I mean, the Scalia method is a positivist message. And even if it might be, uh, even if it might in some ways, you know, be better. Um, because it actually tries to rein in the legislature to the Constitution more. It also takes a view that, you know, the legislature is the policymaker, um, and that's not something that we agree with. I mean, you know, we we don't want legislatures. We think legislation is illegitimate. Democracy is illegitimate and is not the way to create law. It's not real law. Um, and I think this is a point, you know, like with uh, with the Obamacare case after after the hearings, I, I went back and I, I did a little bit more research into some old podcasts around the time that Obamacare came out. And I found a I found a great short episode from back in the day in 2012 by Stephen Molyneux, where he talked about the Obamacare case when it came down five to four Sibelius and basically what he just said. And it's something that I think is true and that we need to understand. And that's. I think it's a problem with the positivist approach. And it's just that he basically said, look, we have the top nine legal minds in the country. And even they couldn't come to an agreement on what the law is. I mean, even they, they were five to four, totally split, very, very different views, you know. And a lot of these cases are five to four, five to four, five to four, six to three, five to four. And it's just kind of like, how can you say that you have law when, you know, the top legal minds in your country can't even can't even come to an understanding of the meaning of some phrase in a piece of legislation? You know, it's just like, and so I think that's an interesting thing for us to remember is that the legislature and the Supreme Court, I mean, they've abdicated their legitimacy by putting us in this situation where, I mean, we do not have law in America right now. You know, it's just like we can't even get the top legal minds to agree on what some phrase means. How can you say you have a law when we can't even come to agreement on what the heck these words even mean? I mean, it's just a total failure of of statism and positivism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of had that thought whenever uh, Ruth Gator Binsberg passed uh, Ruth Bader ginsburg passed away i always mess up her name when she (laughs) passed away i kind of had that thought though because i remember we were looking at her past cases and i you know the one that has always stuck out to me i even brought it up to you and i've brought it up to a few people the fact that she was still trying to whenever she was a supreme court judge still trying to make the case that the interpretation of the Second Amendment today means a collective right to bear arms, not an individual right. The fact that she was, I mean, she didn't succeed, but she was the fact that she was still able to make try to make that case says to me we've failed. <laughs> you know, like, if it's not crystal clear to every single American already that your Second Amendment affords you the individual right, to bear arms even though that's not exactly what it says that's damn well what the founders meant when they wrote that down if that's not clear to you we have failed so what you just told me right there that's even more telling because that's an even greater case with not just one person involved trying to make the case but literally all of them uh yeah we failed and um I mean, I don't know if that says more about the fact that a constitution kind of fails or more that a Supreme Court with the power of judicial review fails. You know, I'm not I'm not sure or 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 just a legislative body like our Congress as is fails. I'm not sure. So that's a very interesting thing. I think we can bring on to a whole nother episode where we could examine all kinds of uh, moments like that throughout our history. But. That's a yeah, that's I mean, a thought that I, hit me a while ago. So I'm sorry, but go ahead. Like that's I mean, I'm glad you brought that up.
0: Well, I think it's just uh I agree with you. I think it's all of them. I think it's the Constitution, I think it's the court and the way they've used judicial review. Um I think it's the way the court has interpreted the Constitution against its original meaning. I think it's how the legislature has uh, used powers that it doesn't have, and the and the court has allowed it to do so. The court has abdicated its responsibility to keep the legislature in check um, from abusing its powers. And the whole time the court does this, the court just says, "Oh, oh, we we need to not be policymakers. You know, we need to we need to not do this." Uh, and and you know, I think that that's uh, I think that that ties into something that I heard Kinsella say not too long ago. Kinsella was just very recently on a, a Keith Knight's show, Don't Tread on Anyone, um, which is a great show. I would suggest people check it out. It's a good podcast.
1: Keith Knight was great. He's kind of new to me, but I just well, I just want to interrupt and say he's great, and he's he'll be the next Tom Woods, Dave Smith type.
0: I could see that. I could see that. He's up and coming. And uh, he just had some uh, Kinsella on uh, about a week ago or so. And one of the things that Kinsella brought up uh, because cause Keith asked him, you know, what is law? And then Kinsella went on one of his long, on long-winded one long rants, and one of the things he ended up getting to was basically saying that the, the way the law works at the federal level is very different from the way the law works at the state level because the states are common law jurisdictions um, other than Louisiana. But the states have their own courts. They have their own common law. And so the common law, you know, derived from England, and basically the common law is a system whereby you sue somebody, you go to court with a judge and a jury. The jury is the finder of fact. So the jury, you know, determines, oh, you know, you did this, or this is what you were thinking when you did this based on the evidence, yada, yada. And then the court, takes those findings, and then the judge says, okay, based on the precedent, based on the laws that we've applied in the past, and also, you know, based on notions of equity and justice, what is the just result in this case? How do we do justice between these parties? And then over time, you stack up those decisions, and you get a body of principles and laws and rulings that you can look back to and say, hey, you know, we ruled this way in this case, This case is kind of similar to it, so we're going to apply that same rule from the past or maybe tweak it a little bit for the new thing. But the point is that the judges in the common law are actually doing law because they're actually doing justice. They're actually focusing on what's the just result between these two parties that are actually before us, right? Mm -hmm. In the federal courts, they don't do that. In the federal courts, basically all it is is interpreting legislation, and comparing it to the Constitution, which the Constitution in itself is basically, you know, a type of legislation. And so what Kinsella says is that these federal judges are basically fakes. They're basically posers. Because they're not judges. They're not justices. They're not doing justice. They're just interpreting words on a piece of paper. And he says, well, you know, that's an interesting exercise. But it's basically, you know, what what 12th graders do when they're reading, you know, trying to get into the subtext of a novel or a play. They're just interpreting words, you know, but you're not doing justice. You're not saying what's the best result in this case. And that's what the common law state judges do. They consider policy. And I think that that's the correct role of judges. That's what a judge actually does, tries to do justice in a particular case. That's not what Supreme Court justices do. Supreme Court justices just punt the issue to the legislature and they'll basically just say, well, you know, it's not for us to decide what's a just and unjust result. And I mean, I can understand within the system, within the federal system itself, why that's the case and why that's probably, you know, what you have to rely on if you're going to be on the Supreme Court. But that doesn't mean I agree with it. And that's not that doesn't mean I think that's the best way to go. Um, and I think it's I think it's a fraud to call you know Supreme Court justices justices because they're not doing justice they're just interpreting statutory texts which has nothing to do with coming to just results or anything like that so I think that's part of the reason why we've come so far is because we're relying on this court to do justice when the very idea of the court is to not do justice is to just punt to the legislature who obviously doesn't do justice and just sells out to special interests and claims to represent people when they don't
1: Well, we should probably move on to something you wanted to really talk about today. We're about 45 minutes into the episode, or about 50 minutes, my bad. Uh, You wanted to bring up Lochner, and I'm I'm sorry, my mind is blanking. I forgot exactly what it was you wanted to talk about, but I know Lochner was involved.
0: Yeah, yeah, so actually this this, this ties in well because what I was just bringing up was the uh, was the transition I wanted to make into into the uh, into the uh, Supreme Court um, cases and stuff I wanted to talk about you know I wanted to bring up how you know the Democrats are trying to show that oh this process is is illegitimate and all this stuff um, and I guess the point I wanted to make is that you know the Dems have their work cut out for them because I don't think that this particular process is is, any straw that breaks the camel's back, in a sense, um, this hearing and this confirmation. Um, but I think that a long time ago, the uh, the Supreme Court lost its legitimacy uh, when it started um, when it started ruling on cases very much right at the beginning of the uh, of the new you know republic, and they were ruling on these cases that were. Directly against the Constitution, you know, within 30 years and so. Uh, so I wanted to, I wanted to just lay that out um, as we as as we start to go through some of these cases, and I want you to realize, listeners, um, how you know, this this illegitimacy goes back far, you know, far more than just any recent process or any recent election. I mean, it goes all the way back to John Marshall when he was lying. In his, you know, opinions about the nature of the republic and other things like that. So let's start with McCulloch versus Maryland and the Necessary and Popper Clause, because I want to I want to get to the Commerce Clause, but this case is really important to understanding. You know, it, it sets a it sets a baseline of 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 Congress's powers um, and other things th- that are important to understand as we move into the Commerce Clause and, and what the what the what the Congress does with that. So in 1819, the case McCulloch versus Maryland uh, was a case where the, the federal government, the legislature, was trying to create a national bank. And in Maryland, the state of Maryland was trying to tax the federal bank because they didn't want it there. They didn't agree with it, and so they were trying to tax it out of existence, basically. And so the case came to the Supreme Court, and basically the question was, does Congress have the authority to make a national bank? And if so, um, does it, you know can it be taxed by a state institution? And basically, in this case, John Marshall appealed to the necessary and proper clause and said that, The Necessary and Proper Clause is a grant of power to the Congress. So it's not a limitation, as one might think, right? So if I were to say to you, hey, Stratty, I want you to do this thing, but I want you to do it in a way where you do it by means that are only necessary and proper. So when you hear those words, what do you think, Stratty? What do you you think if I were to say you have to do something but you can only use means that are necessary and proper. What did, What would you think that would
1: mean? Whatever gets the job done. I mean, I mean that's what pops into my head, honestly, so I could be interpreting it totally incorrect, but who knows what these tyrants are thinking.
0: Well, you know, when I read necessary and proper, what I think was necessary, which means it cannot be done without it, right? The necessary and proper totally means that you know, just by the clear language it means means that you couldn't do it without, you know, you couldn't do you couldn't exercise this power without using this means, right? And so Marshall throws this out the window. Marshall just says, eh, necessary and proper doesn't mean necessary and proper. Necessary and proper means convenient and useful. And he said this. He said that if the founders meant for the necessary and proper clause to actually mean necessary and proper, they would have said absolutely necessary and proper. That's literally in the opinion. He literally says that necessary and proper doesn't mean necessary and proper.
1: So it kind of sounds like Marshall's understanding of the necessary and proper clause was a little bit like my understanding I said a couple minutes there ago.
0: Yeah and and it's uh it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of issue that that's going into it because it's just you know he is just such a liar. I mean, you know, reading John Marshall's opinions, he just lies about things. He lies about the meaning of words, he lies about history, he lies about political theory. He's just a bald-faced liar, you know, trying to increase the power of the federal government and increase the power of the court that he's sitting on. Um you know, Marshall was a very big federalist. And uh, so it, it, it's just, uh, yeah, it's really frustrating, you know, back, you know, 200 years ago. I mean, this case, 1819, you know, 201 years ago, um, this uh, this necessary and proper clause has been incorrectly, incorrectly understood, you know, which uh, and, and this also ties into stare decisis and stuff. I mean, it's like McCulloch is super precedent. Absolutely. But. That doesn't mean it's right, right? I mean, McCulloch was wrongly decided, so you know, it's just it, it's just one of those things where you know uh, it just kind of ties into that issue. Uh, but yeah, just moving ahead, this uh, so yeah, necessary and proper doesn't mean necessary and proper; it means convenient and useful. The clause is a grant of power, not a not a restriction on power, right? So basically, what they say is that you know the powers that are enumerated there are implied powers in order to effectuate the express powers and those implied powers are within the necessary and proper clause and so it's like okay congress has the right to regulate interstate commerce well then they can do this and this you know they can create some agency or they can create a bank or you know all this stuff that's not actually in the constitution but the supreme court allows it to do this because of this faulty Reading of the Necessary and
1: Proper Clause.
0: Necessary and Proper Clause was supposed to be a restriction on government power, not an expansion of it, but
1: one hell of a loophole he found there. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And I mean it's part of his it's part of his genius. I mean, because he was a genius, but an evil genius. Um the last thing I'll say about McCulloch is that it um it, it clearly rejects the compact theory of the union. Um and, you know, this is the theory that we've talked about before where, you know, the it was not the uh, it was not the abstract body politic of the entire nation that came together to create the uh, the federal constitution. It was the states. The states came together. It was state ratifying conventions in the state legislatures by the representatives. So it was the state acting when they when they adopted the constitution, and the constitution went into effect when only 11 of the 13 colonies had ratified. So two of the states didn't ratify until after the Constitution was already in effect for the other 11. So how can you say that the nation of America, the American people as a whole, of all of the 13 colonies, you can't say that all of them enacted the Constitution as the body politic of the entire nation because there were states that hadn't even ratified it when it went into effect, so it's just a bald-faced lie that that Marshall's, that Marshall's, uh, that marshals laying out here. Um, and you know, if anybody wants more more information on the compact theory of the union, you know, look up uh, Tom Woods. He's done great work um, on this, laying out the history of all this. But it's just, uh, yeah, McCulloch. It's just an absolutely terrible opinion, which has laid the framework for a lot of uh, a lot of evils committed by the federal government over the past two hundred years. So the reason, I, the reason I bring up the Necessary and Proper Clause, as I said before, is I think it's important to understand before getting into the Commerce Clause, because um, the Necessary and Proper Clause plays in a little bit into some of the court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence. Um, and so shortly after McCulloch, um, uh, five years later in, eight, in 1824, a case was ruled again, John Marshall uh, which was called Gibbons versus Ogden. And Gibbons versus Ogden is the big first uh, Commerce, Commerce Clause case. And what happened in this case was there was a dispute. Gibbons was granted permission from Congress to operate steamboats in New York. Ogden was granted a license by the state of New York to operate his steamboat in the same manner. So Ogden filed suit for an, an injunction to prevent Gibbons from operating his steamboats, so basically there's a there's a conflict here between a state between the state of New York's license to Ogden and the congressional license to Gibbons, and so basically the issue was uh, um, can states regulate interstate commerce within its borders when Congress also regulates the same area of interstate commerce. And the court said no. The court said that under the commerce power, the Congress has supreme authority. You know, based with the supremacy clause, which we talked a little bit in our first constitutional constitution episode. And so, yeah. So the, basically, this was the start of the uh, of the expansive commerce power. Basically, they say that commerce, uh, commerce is equal to intercourse. Right? It's not just limited to, uh, to the trafficking of goods. And uh, I read one of Judge Napolitano's books um, on the Constitution, and he talks about how the original understanding of, of commerce was about buying and selling and transport of things, right? Whereas in Gibbons, we're already starting to push away from that original view of what the word actually meant. Gibbons is pushing away and saying, no, it's not just trafficking of things. It's not just buying and selling, but it's it's all business action, all business intercourse, right? Which, if it's interstate, then it's under Congress's authority. So this is a classic example of, you know, you give an inch to the government and they're going to take a mile. I mean, obviously, you know, you give them an inch to regulate the commerce, which just basically meant trafficking, and then you know, once you give them that, they're gonna take it and say, no, no, it's it's more than just that. We can we can regulate m- more than even that. And so, yeah, in Gibbons, they say that Congress's interstate commerce power is plenary, which basically means that it has no limits other than the express limits of the Constitution. And again, we're seeing here we're basically we're, it's the implied powers. Bullcrap. I mean, it's just like it's basically saying, hey, you know, the entire idea of having a constitution is that the government can't do what it's not enumerated to do because the idea of the constitution was that there were rights that preceded the constitution and those rights are preserved, right? So the rights precede the constitution and so the Congress only has those authorities, which is as expressly delegated in the constitution. Gibbons throws this out the window. Gibbons just says, no, the commerce power is plenary, which means that it is limitless other than the express limits on it in the Constitution. See, again, this inversion. The the Constitution is supposed to be express powers, and you can only do what is expressly allowed. Gibbons says that under the commerce power, the the Congress can do everything which is not expressly prohibited which is bogus, ridiculous, against the original meaning of the Constitution and uh, um, is, is wrongly decided. So Gibbons lays the foundations for the Commerce Clause uh, uh, jurisprudence. Uh, and moving forward into other cases, in 1903 we had a case called Champion versus Ames, and in that case uh, we had a prohibition on the interstate... Uh, movement of, of lottery tickets. And basically what the court upheld in this case, the court upheld the regulation. They basically said that, hey, you know, we can have regulation of morals vers- via the Commerce Clause because, you know, uh, the, the trafficking of, of, of vice goods and stuff, you know, that's, uh, that's something that Congress needs to, uh, to handle in their view and so therefore um, you can use the Commerce Clause to regulate morals. And uh, also in this case they held that the Commerce Clause reaches instrumentalities of interstate commerce, which basically means roads, um, uh, uh, cars, boats, planes, other things used to transport goods and, 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 and to do that, you know, these instrumentalities of interstate commerce. So broadening of this power it was supposed to just be you know, you It was supposed to. The idea of the Commerce Clause was to keep, uh, it was to keep commerce regular, right? Because before the Constitution, we talked about this a little bit before in our first constitutional episode. There were tariffs that the states were setting up in between each other, so that you know the free trade and the benefits of free trade couldn't couldn't be realized because of, you know, some of the cronyism that was going on in the legislatures getting protective legislation and tariffs. So part of the reason of the Constitution was to get rid of those. But, so the, uh, the, the whole idea was, you know, we want interstate commerce to be regular, meaning, you know, not impeded. That was the meaning of to regulate interstate commerce in the original Constitution. But now today we have a different understanding of what regulate means. Regulate just basically means control or to have some, you know, law put in place. That's not what it meant at the time of the Constitution. It just meant we want interstate commerce to regularly occur. We don't want it to be impeded. And so, therefore, the Congress has ultimate authority over interstate commerce so that the states can't erect these, you know, inefficient and politically charged tariff barriers, um, which, I mean, obviously is uh, a good thing to get rid of those tariff barriers, but they just took this supposed-to-be-very-limited Commerce, you know, Interstate Commerce Authority to to fight against these these tariffs, and to have you know a one national economy, they uh, they just take this small grant of power and they they just balloon it, um, and this is what the Supreme Court has consistently done to aggrandize uh, the federal government, which they are of course a part of, um, and also in Champion versus Ames, the Court held that the due process clause does not limit the plenary commerce power. So, like we said before, you know, the, it's it's plenary. There are no limits on it other than the express limits, and basically, they say that the due process clause uh, is not one of those things. So, you know, you don't have to have uh, uh, all of the of uh, the uh, due process restrictions for the Commerce Clause regulations that you do for other things. It's a very very dangerous to take away such an important right to engage in economic activity and not even have a, you know, protection of, it, of of due process. It's very dangerous of what the court was doing and champion. After that, there was a case, let me pull it up here, we have Houston East and West, Texas Railway Company versus the United States. And in this case from 1914, the court held that when a state's control over intrastate commerce, right, so a state is regulating the commerce within its own borders, intrastate, when a state's control over interstate commerce spills over to affect interstate commerce, then Congress has the ultimate regulatory authority over the use of the of the instrumentalities of Congress uh, of commerce at issue. So we see here that again we're broadening the reach of the commerce power. You know, we started oh okay in Gibbons it's plenary. There's no express. Uh, There's no, um, uh, there's only express limits, not express grants, right? So, so Gibbons is expanding the commerce power. It doesn't only apply to trafficking, blah blah blah. Champion versus Ames, it applies to morals, instrumentalities, no due process clause, and so we're seeing this this growth of this commerce, this commerce clause beyond its original meaning. And Houston Rail is inching us towards more this idea of, you know, it doesn't have to be interstate commerce as such. It just has to be something which, which affects interstate commerce, which spills over into interstate commerce. And this is what's come to be known as the Substantial Relations Test under the Commerce Clause jurisprudence, which was uh, basically put into full force in a 1937 case called the National Labor Relations Board versus Jones and Laughlin Steel Company. And in this case, the court held that Congress's commerce power does not end at the flow of commerce, right? It's not just trafficking, as we said in Gibbons. And it lays down the substantial relations test, which means that as long as something is substantially related to interstate commerce, it can be regulated under the Commerce Clause by Congress even if it's not something which is in itself interstate commerce, right? And so this is something we'll get to later. We'll get to this in our next episode um, when we talk about Lochner um, and and, and cases that came after Lochner. In United States versus Lopez, the government tried to say that under the Commerce Clause, we can regulate the possession of firearms at schools because— Having firearms at school will affect the school learning environment negatively, therefore creating citizens who are not as smart and not as productive in the economy, and therefore that's a substantial effect on interstate commerce, and therefore the government argued that they could regulate the possession of firearms at state schools, even though it's not interstate commerce directly because it substantially affects interstate commerce now the court rejected that argument in lopez which was a case from the 90s and we'll get to that we'll get to that full case later but i'm just trying to point out how this substantial relations test you know and, and, and over these years over 100 years or so of the of the Com- commerce clause jurisprudence we're starting to see how this just it's just growing and growing and growing far beyond um, any original understanding of what this uh, what this actual express delegation of authority was supposed to be. There's another case from 1918, which was uh, a case which held a great uh, uh, ruling. And you know this is this is a case that can get emotionally charged because of the facts. It's a case called uh, a case called Hammer versus Dagenhart from 1918. And basically, what happened is that there was a child labor act which was passed by Congress which prohibited the interstate transportation of goods produced with child labor. And uh, so the question in this case was whether or not this was a legitimate exercise of the Commerce Clause power. Now, I will say that now this is one of the things that a lot of people don't understand. And I think this is one of the important points that links into the Barrett hearings with how they were, oh, the you're going to overrule... Uh, the Affordable Care Act, which has done all this great stuff for these people and blah blah blah, all stuff that the stuff that the Democrats were saying. But you have to think when you're thinking with a lawyer mind, you have to understand that sometimes the rulings you make in a specific case, they're going to have effects on, fu- on future cases. And this is something that judges consider in the common law when they're doing their job. They're trying to think, okay, I want to do justice in this case. And we also need to understand, that doing justice in this case is going to set a rule of how we ruled, and that might be used in future cases. So that's something you need to consider when you're making a ruling. How is this going to be interpreted in the future? And so with Hammer, you know, some people might say, oh, well, you know, we don't want child labor. Child labor is terrible, and we want to, you know, make sure that we don't uh, have that. But you have to realize that ruling in a case on this child labor and the specifics of the facts that rule that you're going to set forth is going to have widespread effects in things that don't con- that don't concern child labor. Before getting on to more onto that, though, I will say that, first of all, uh, not having child labor is a privilege of living in the West and living under capitalism. Uh, if you read Human Action, Mises goes into this, and he talks about how child labor laws that were set up in the Third World basically doomed these countries to poverty because, you know, these people are living on a dollar a day and if the children don't work, they starve. I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's a terrible situation. Obviously, nobody wants children to work in coal mines and crap, but that's a luxury that we have today. You know, that's a luxury that we have from all the wealth that we've accumulated and we don't get to this point where we can allow children to not work without all the people beforehand making those sacrifices and children having to work, it wasn't even an option. It wasn't even a choice. If you didn't work, you died. So I hate all this moral grandstanding about, oh, the, the, the capitalism and child labor. It's like, look, ch- children worked under every single economic system up until, you know, the moderate industrial revolution. So it's just ridiculous.
1: Even today, even today you get kids lying about their ages and doing work because they need to Get the work done for their families exactly so I mean uh, these laws are hurting people more than it's helping them I mean I don't absolutely I, I don't see any children in America being forced into a job by you know the the barrel of a gun but I do see kids taking on jobs voluntarily to help out their families
0: it's it's the wealth of capitalism that allowed children to not have to work not the laws passed by Congress or any other state, you know, because if you if you pass those laws before you have the wealth to do so, then, you know, you're going to be stuck in poverty and probably have children starving, which we see across the, uh, the third world. So anyway, I just think that's an important point to realize, to think about how when you're ruling a case, you have to understand what the long-term effects of this are going to be. And in Hammer, the court ruled correctly, in my view. That manufacturing and production of goods, even those intended for future transport and interstate commerce, are not subject to the Congress's commerce power. They say that it's a categorically, categorically outside of the realm because it's manufacturing and production. It's not trafficking. It's not trade. It's not buying and selling. It's just production within a place. And you know, even if the goods come in from interstate commerce, you know, they're there right now and they're being used for a specific purpose. And so, you know, they're basically saying that manufacturing and production are just something that is not under the purview of the Commerce Clause. So even if you agreed with even if you agreed with the act or whatever, you know, the Child Labor Law Act, it was just unconstitutional because manufacturing and production are not within the express delegated authority of the Commerce Commerce Power. Uh, so, yeah, there's no congressional power to force states to exercise their police powers to prevent possible unfair competition because of the differences between states' manufacturing and labor laws, regulations, policies. So this is, you know, just one of the ideas of federalism, too. You know, we want to have different states with different policies, and to the least extent possible, do we want federal overarching one-size-fits-all things. And so to have, you know, differences in, in manufacturing laws and processes between states is a healthy competition, uh, which is good for the market, absolutely. Um, and this is something that the court recognized. Um, but uh, sadly, a few years later, in a case called Darby, uh, United States versus Darby, the, cur- the court overruled Hammer. And the court held that the substantial relations test, which I pointed out before, applies to the manufacturing and production of goods. And so Hammer was overruled. And uh, they held in Darby that when an interstate commerce regulation's end is legitimate, then any means not expressly prohibited are allowed, even those that directly control intrastate commerce, right? And so this is bringing in the Necessary and Proper Clause again, right? We're talking about how it's just... Uh, you know, it, we're not looking at what the Congress has expressly delegated. We're looking at well, w- what was the express limits on them? Not what was the express grants to them. You know, this inversion of, of the entire idea of having a Constitution in the first place. So within the scope of the Commerce Power, states' police power and reserved rights must yield to the plenary Commerce Power. That's what the co- that's what the court held in Darby. So I think that's where we're going to end with this episode, and then the next episode, I want to get into Lochner, which is a substantive due process case, and before we do that, um, I have a excerpt something that Kinsella wrote recently that I want to read to all of you, um, taking down substantive due process as an idea entirely, um, and, and I've talked about this a little bit before in one of our earlier episodes, how I'm kind of conflicted on the whole idea of, su- of substantive due process. I don't really know... Uh, exactly how to feel about it. Um, I'm feeling more and more uh, anti-substantive due process. I think I'm coming over to the side of Kinsella and Thomas. Um, but, uh, you, know, you know, it's definitely something I'm still thinking a lot of and I want to talk about it in our next episode. Um, but I, but I want to bring it up because Lochner is a substantive due process case, but it has implications for the Commerce Clause. So as we move forward with this story in our next episode, it'll be important to understand how the, sub- the relationship between substantive due process and the commerce clause that go that goes into this, I guess uh, with all of that, I'll turn it to you, and I'll just ask you if you have any thoughts on all of this commerce clause junk that I've been that I've been uh, shotgunning towards your face over the last few minutes. And uh, with that, we can have closing words and wrap it up.
1: So my I mean my thoughts on the commerce clause are basic, and uh, I'll just put it into the words that Napolitano put it in. To whenever he was teaching us about it and it's that you know the commerce clause is the hook that congress hangs its hat on when in, in terms of power so that's what they kind of get everything in their favor on is the use of the commerce clause so that's just something to keep in mind with the commerce clause itself but i'm very interested to see its relationship with the you know substantive due process i'm excited for next episode but um Before we leave, um, I did have a new article come out at the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus dot com. It's called Coronavirus is Killing the American Soul. I will make sure David leaves a link to it in the description for this episode, but that's about it. Check out Insurrection Inc. Um, as well. Leave us a good review on iTunes. Uh, Take it away, Dave.
0: Yeah, I just want to say... Uh, if you want, join our Discord. We're gonna keep plugging that because we're trying to grow it and get more people. Um, hoping if I get this episode out before Thursday, I guess I'll throw it out. Um, hoping to have a little, uh, a little presidential debate live chat in the Discord. So anybody who wants to join in and talk with us personally and meet us and and have some fun, uh, please come into the Discord and uh, and uh, talk with us. We'd love to have. Uh, we'd love to have you. And, yeah, you know, uh, like uh, Stratty said, uh, leave us a review. You can email us, lawoflibertypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter. I'll I'll put all the handles and links and stuff in the description. Uh, But beyond that, that's all I have for today. And uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Stratty?
1: Thank you all, and you all have a great week.
0: All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Law of Liberty Podcast.